to Jared to and welcome to Bitcoin people. It's gorgeous to meet you. Uh, Thank you. You too. We, um, we have not met. You responded to me when I put out the word on Twitter and said, hey, I'm thinking of doing this podcast. And you went, sure, pick me. I'm up for anything. I'll have a chat. Absolutely. <laughs> and so that's how we came to be here. We've spoken for a couple of minutes just prior to hitting the record button. Uh, but at this stage, I know relatively little about you. And that's the whole beauty of these conversations is to get to know people and find out who is this strange and diverse Bitcoin community and are we a community? And I guess the question that sort of prompted me into all of this is, do we have stuff in common? Are there values in common or are we just incredibly disparate people with simply our humanity in common? And so that's what I'm keen to explore over the course of these conversations. So I'm gonna start by asking you simply a little bit about who in the world is Jared? Tell me a bit about you. Where do you come from? What's your background and how did you end up? Well, for sure. being here, um, not so much in the Bitcoin space, we'll move on to that later, but, but what brought you to being here where you are in the, in the world today? Okay, so um, I'm, well, first off, I suppose I should say I'm from the US. Um, you know, it's a big country. Uh, I'm from the least populated state in the US, which is actually also one of the larger states. It's right in the dead center of the country. I'm from Wyoming. Um, I was born just south of here and grew up probably 40 miles from where I'm sitting right now. Um, and it's, it's a like I say, it's a rural state. This, the town I'm living in has just over a thousand people in it, not a big city. Uh, we have a lot of farming that goes on here. This is kind of a truck stop town. It's uh, right on one of the main routes right across the center of the country. So, um, and I grew up 45 mile or 45 minute drive, about 40 miles from the nearest grocery store, which is, you know, for most people, that's pretty strange, I guess. But for me, that was kind of normal. I grew up on a, not a working farm, but an old farm. And I was homeschooled, which even at the time was not, not real common. Um, so homeschooled clear through for all of my schooling. Uh, went out east to a, actually first I went to a community college uh, here in, in the area. Uh, got some initial stuff out of the way. Went to a college out east to, Patrick Henry College, which is a Christian college out east. And then I met, I, I got a couple of years into that and I met my future wife and I was, I was home on Christmas break. It's actually kind of a fun story. I was home on Christmas break and she was visiting a brother. She was going to college in Oregon. I was going to college in Virginia. That's one on, almost as far apart as you can get in the U.S., but not quite, you know, without, without going outside the continental U.S. That's Pretty good distance apart. We met in December at a Christmas ball. And you know how these things work, I, I don't know exactly, but by the next July, we were married. So we knew each other six months. Most of it was uh, long distance. And by July, we were married. <laughs> and 
I ended up I ended up leaving college then, and it was partly it was because I got married, but mostly it, getting married helped me to refocus on my priorities and what I really wanted to do with my life. And I was realizing that going to college wasn't helping me. I wanted to be a fiction writer ever since I was like 10 years old. And so going to college wasn't really doing much for me in that sphere. I was, I had gone through some journalism programs and I was discovering that I had no real heart for journalism. The The profession is one of the one of the dirtiest ones, I swear it really is. It's uh, and and the people who are in the journalism world in the U.S., especially back when I was going to college in the early two thousands, really didn't share a lot of um, values with me. Which means, as as a career, and and they, frankly, I'm I'm a Christian conservative guy, and they would have not accepted me. Most of them. They would have not wanted anything to do with me. I would not have had a career. And it wasn't really what I wanted to be doing in the first place. It was something that I was doing because I needed something in between being a kid and being a writer. And so I quit going to college and tried a little bit of writing and didn't quite work out and wound up doing a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Uh, worked for my dad's company for a number of years, and just recently I quit there, and I'm now writing a fiction, my first book, my first fiction book. So that's sort of how I got to where I am right now in life. Absolutely fantastic. So you met your wife quite young then. Uh, I was 22, and she was 24, I think. So in day and age, that strikes me as quite young. You know, I, I don't know. I in the culture that I come from, um, there's there's a culture in America of uh, religious Christian people where getting married at late teens, early twenties is very common. Um, oh, okay. So, and she came from she came from an even more conservative culture than I did. So. Mm where she came from that there was certainly nothing unusual about it at all mm-hmm. and that was you know it was one of those things where as I got to know her it was almost like there was this gravitational force pulling us together and there was there was nothing about it that was going to end in uh just friends it was either we're going to be married or we're just going to not know each other anymore it's one or the other so yeah best best thing I've ever done for sure Beautiful. That's fantastic. Um, just so that I can get a kind of picture, because I don't know um, many of the states very well, the ones sure. that obviously get most coverage on the in the media, you know, I feel like I have some familiarity with. I've visited a couple of different states. But when you <clears throat> talked about the farming country around you, what kind of farms and what kind of weather? And what's the kind of topography of Wyoming? Is it um, mountainous, hilly, dry? Okay, so Wyoming is one of those states, there's this great big vein of mountains that runs right down the center of the US. And it kind of starts up by Canada and comes right down the center. It's, they're quite tall. Um, Wyoming has that passing right through the middle of it. I live just to the east of that. And where I live, I'm I'm living at about six thousand feet elevation. Oh, wow! But it's but it's the high plains. It's we're not up on a mountain. It's just 
basically it's flat all around us. You can see mountains way, way, way off in the distance, like a three hour drive away, but only on a good day when it's real clear. So it's dry land farms, a lot of it, um, because because we're so high up, there isn't a lot of groundwater that's uh, available to us. You, you have to drill down like 100 feet to hit water in a lot of places. And there are people who run center pivot sprinklers and do some corn, but mostly it's dry land wheat or ranching. And really what this area is suited for is red wheat, but uh, it's also quite good for ranching. And I have, I, there are numerous people I know, and I'm my uh, a particularly good friend of mine does cattle and sheep ranching. So that's sort of the, that's sort of the area, what you would say about the area. Wyoming is the least populous state in the U.S. We've got about 500,000 people in the whole state. So not a lot of people. Um, and the big things that Wyoming does are agriculture and energy. Uh, a lot of coal mining, a lot of natural gas, a lot of, uh, other different sorts of energy-based things and a lot of agriculture across the state. And does that get, um, I'm going to use the word exported, to other states? Mm -hmm. Does it get piped? Does your gas get piped or does it yeah. get liquefied? Well, and well, the other thing is we do have a lot of power generation here in Wyoming too. So a big chunk of a big chunk of it gets used in power generation here. Some of the coal gets shipped by train usually to other states. Yeah. Um, the, cat, the gas does get piped to other states. Just south of us is Colorado. And, you know, a lot of people have heard of Denver. Denver is a pretty good sized city. They got a few million people there. And the whole front range of Colorado, which stretches right down those mountains, is it's a beautiful, beautiful place to live. And there's a lot of people right in that zone. So they've got a lot of energy needs. They've got a lot of other stuff. And, and Wyoming serves some of that. And we've also got, you know, places east and west and whatever, so. So have you, have you got a lot of Bitcoin miners setting up in Wyoming? Quite a few actually, interestingly <laughs> enough. There's, um, uh, I've heard a few interviews with some guys from Wyoming, actually, which sort of made me smile because, you know, we're not, like I say, we don't have a lot of people here. It's, it's a very rural area. Yeah. How do you feel like that sense of space and sparseness of popularity affected you as you grew up? How do you reckon that affects someone's psyche? Well, one of the things that I definitely think it did was impress on me the whole individuality um, aesthetic, I don't, I don't know how to express it exactly, but around here, people are self-sufficient. We take care of ourselves and we take care of each other because that's what you have to do when there aren't a lot of people around. Mm -hmm. It isn't until you get a lot of people crowding into a space that you end up with the more, um, the more city atmosphere where people don't want to actually know their neighbors, where they don't actually want to um, interact and, and where it becomes lo a lost in a crowd sort of thing. We don't really have that here, which is one of the things I love about it. And it also sort of, you know, sort of naturally leads into the whole Bitcoin thing because 
when you're when you're take, used to taking care of yourself and taking care of your family and taking care of the people around you, you're looking for the answer to the big problems. You're looking for the solutions to things, and Bitcoin really is that. Yeah, it most certainly is. I mean, it's bringing up lots of different kind of thoughts for me as you say that, because also, of course, once you move into the city, you don't need to rely on your neighbor because there's everyone specialized in something. So you can hire someone to do something. That's uh, right. And, uh, whereas I'm guessing from what you're saying, then there's also a certain um, generalist mentality in a place like Wyoming, where you all have to be able to be a little bit jack of all trades while still, of course, having strengths and specializations. Would that be fair? Yeah, I would, I'd say there's some of that going on. You know, the modern world still touches us here. I mean, we order stuff off Amazon, same as most people in the US do. We, we can order out for pizza if we want to. There's a pizza place not too far from here that'll deliver. I mean, they're, you know, it's, it's stuff like that. It's it's not exactly like it's totally backward or something, but at the same time, most of the people around here have the farmer rancher mentality where if they got a problem, they find a way to solve it. And it may not be the best or prettiest or most uh, socially acceptable way to solve it, but they do it. and. That's how they do things. That's that's sort of the way you look at things. We get her done. My husband's got a quote that he picked up, I think, from a Clint Eastwood movie somewhere along the lines, which is um, adapt, improvise, and overcome. And that's his thing. Yeah. You know, he's, he's a fix-it guy. He finds ways to fix things. And as you say, yeah. it's often not pretty, that's, but it's functional. <laughs> well, and that's that's sort of the mentality around here. It's one of those things where if I've chosen to live here not because I fit in here, because in a lot of ways I don't. My personality is more, you know, I, I told you I want to write fiction. My personality is more suited to the, um, as I would call it, to a suburban or city life. But the reason I've chosen to live here is it looks to me like society's headed for some difficult times. And I need to be able to rely on the people around me. I need to have people around me I can trust and I need to be in an area where they grow their own food. They're used to growing their own food and it's a normal thing to go to your neighbor and buy a half a beef or eggs or goat cheese or whatever it is you need. Yeah, absolutely. Was, okay, then. Uh, tell me before we go down that path a little bit further, which is kind of the obvious route to go in a way, but I am I'm mm -hmm. curious about your book. Uh, tell me. Yeah, Absolutely. You've obviously had this calling to write all the way through, though there's been many things that's tempted you in other directions, and yet this you keep coming back to this. This is clearly just like um, a need within you to write. First of all, have you written other bits and pieces along the way, even though maybe not a full novel, maybe not published, but just do you find yourself just writing for fun? And then tell me about this novel. Okay. Well... When I was young, I wrote everything from poetry. Um, and there's a particular poem that I wrote that I think is actually good, which it's hard to do that. You know, it's, as, especially as a writer, when you look at something you've written, you go, that's just, there's so much wrong with that. There's no way to see it in a good light a lot of times, but there's one I've written that I thought was really good. And I haven't tried poetry since I was a kid, but um, I also, when my teens wrote a 200 page novel, and it was 
never of sufficient quality that I thought it could be published. Mm-hmm. It was just missing too much. And it was, it was too, I was too young and too inexperienced. I didn't have enough life under my belt to really do it right. And I could see that reading. But um, when I, when I got married and I started trying to write, I wrote some, some short stories and um, this, this need I have, you're right. It's um, how would I put it? Andrew Claven is a guy who works for the Daily Wire. Um, he's also a mystery writer, made, you know, made his name writing mysteries for a long time. And the way he put it is, he said, you aren't a writer because you like to write. You're a writer because you have to write. It's part of who you are. And if you don't do it, you become unwell, something along those lines. And that's about the size of it for me. Mm-hmm. Now, it isn't just writing. Um, when I was writing, when I was first married, I wound up with sort of this situation where I thought God was directing me to do it and that he would provide for me in doing it. And it didn't wind up that way. And it was, again, it was, you know, I was, I was a kid and I was inexperienced and I wasn't, I didn't really understand very much about how the world worked and all of the things that go with that were came back to bite me and I got seriously depressed and I'm like, you know what, if I don't understand how this is supposed to work, then I really don't know that this is what I'm supposed to be doing. So I set it aside. I set it aside for 10 years and I would write a little bit of this or that here and there. But in the meantime, I worked on a video game. I I built, almost completed a computer game in, in the meantime. And then beginning of this year, I started to, I started to get the feeling that it was time and I picked writing back up. And so as to what I'm writing right now, um, uh, have you, you've heard of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis? Yeah, yep, of course. Okay. You could think of this as a Chronicles of Narnia for a post-Star Wars generation. It's, um, <laughs> It is a, I wouldn't call it an allegory. It's not an allegory, but it, it has some of those same feelings that you would get from uh, C.S. Lewis's books. And it is written as a science fiction story. And it's mostly for young adults, though. I, as an adult, I would enjoy reading what I'm currently writing. So, you know, but I, I write it for young adults because that was the age I was at when this story came to me. And this was the one that sort of got me through a lot of my growing up, which was not really an easy time. I had, I had difficulty growing up, but um, this story was one I sort of came up with in my head over a number of years. And so now I'm finally writing it. Feels like it needed to be written. It's been sort of waiting for you in the background. It really has. There's a lovely concept about, um, I know that I've read this in in, um, a Richard Bach book somewhere where the idea is waiting for you, you know? Uh, It's out there desperate to be expressed in the world and it's inspiring you to be its conduit. Yeah, well, and and this is, I got to admit, this is a bit of a dangerous subject because I could talk about this for three or four hours without stopping, so... (laughs) So when you're writing, do you feel like a conduit? Do you feel like it's coming from your head, from your heart? Does it feel like it's coming through you somehow? 
How's that working? Oh gosh. Um, well, how would I express this? Um, there was a, there was something I watched a while back, a seminar done by Dr. Michael Heiser called The Unseen Realm. And it was actually an exploration of the Bible. He was talking about the spiritual realms in the Bible and what the, what the people who were writing scripture actually felt like or what it was like for them when they were writing scripture. He said, God doesn't channel through people. That's what demons do. And he's right. So what would I say? I would say that there is inspiration that comes to me that is beyond what I would expect myself to be able to provide, but that at the same time, it is coming out of my head and it is coming out of my heart. And it's all, you know, the story itself is one that is deeply meaningful, both to me and um, as I'm, as I'm pulling it together, I'm trying to use, uh, I'm trying to use scripture as a, oh, I'll call it, say that say that scripture is my muse in this case, but also that the um, the actual what the characters are doing, what's going on on a moment to moment basis, is something that I I sort of just bury myself in. What would this be like if if I were there and these people were doing these things? What would this what would happen? And I write it like that. Lovely. And when you said that this kind of came to you when you were having a, a difficult time growing up, as you, as you put it, what was going on for you at the time? And is this book kind of the solution to the problem? Is it being written almost as a, um, as a guide to, yours, to your former self, as a guide to other kids going through similar difficulties? Oh, I would say there's some of that in it, but um, as to what was going on at the time, um, my, my mom was, uh, most people would say she was mentally ill. She had some serious emotional problems and it led her to, to be incredibly difficult to live with, much less to be her son. And so one of my big escapes was my imagination. And that imagining what I would do and where I would be if I was in, if I was in a world that I could create myself was a big chunk of what happened there. And so that's, that's where a lot of the background for this and a lot of the story for this came from, was that, that imagination, that escape. And so one of the, oh, I'm not sure how much to give away here exactly, but um, one of the devices in the story is that the main character is a, a boy who is, um, travels to uh, another world. Mm -hmm. And the boy who travels to another world is a boy who is going through difficult times mm -hmm. in his growing up and he's about 12 years old something like that so 
if that does that sort of answer your question? Yeah, it certainly does. It certainly does. It gives a feeling for what was going on for you, but also some of the some of the motivation, a part of the motivation for, for right. kind of the, the a part of it for sure. Yeah, certainly not all of it. Um, okay, so it's sounding to me um, that there's many things kind of setting you up here for an attraction to Bitcoin. Uh, you've already been very directly uh, stated, of course, that that whole sense of being self-sufficient, of taking personal responsibility is strong to the Wyoming population and, and the way things happen there. Um, as a Christian conservative, I can imagine that personal responsibility is a big part of your values there. And yeah. then you've also got this uh there's uh in the nature nurture thing and in, in your upbringing on the nurture side there's this sense of needing to be independent and look after yourself to some degree if you're grappling at home with a mother who perhaps can't be there quite to the degree you might have felt that you needed at the time um so it feels like there's a lot that's setting you up here. There's more than that too. You know, I, I would say that there are very few people who I've ever met who constructed their worldview themselves from sort of from scratch, who, who went down and looked at what's at the base of what I believe, what's at the base of reality? What matters about the world? How does it all fit together? How does it work? And I would say that my primary interest in life has been in understanding how and why reality works. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, there is no such thing as a person who is not, who does not have faith. You have to have faith in something. Maybe you have faith in what you see and in what you hear and in what you touch. Okay, that's fine. That puts you sort of in an agnostic category. That's that's fine. But you're still having faith that what you're looking at and what you're touching are actually real. You have mm -hmm. faith in that. Um, and so when it comes down to it, I chose to have faith in the creator. I chose to have faith in God. And that was when I was very young. I was in my, gosh, I had to have been 10 or 11 or I don't know when I sort of started constructing my worldview and I started constructing it. And if you do that, you come to realize at some point when you're examining and you have to get a long ways down the road, but when you're examining Western culture and the ideas that have been important to all of, you know, previously Europe and America and Australia and whatever, but, and spreading, but um, to Western society, you come to realize that the one big innovation, the one really important thing that they came up with is this idea that the individual is the most important unit of society. And that has led to incredible, incredible um, progress and gains and wealth and achievement. And you can't see it in any society that doesn't share that set of values. Mm -hmm. 
Um, in fact, you look at societies that tend to be more collective or more authoritarian or whatever, and what you tend to find is that because of that, um, I was actually listening to an interview that Jordan Peterson did with a lady from, uh, I can't remember the name of the country, but it was an African nation. She said that in looking at African countries, somebody did a big study of African countries to figure out why they were so poor. And she said the big correlative factor that they came up with is lots of laws, lots of regulations, and bad laws, bad regulations, and that that tends to lead people to be poor. It makes perfect sense. When you, when you take a top-down approach and you try to force people to do things, whatever those things are, the more of that you do, the less successful the individual is going to be because the less ability they have to be creative and to express whatever it is that drives them. For me, it's fiction writing, but I have, I was born into a family of very mechanical people. They build things and looking at what it takes to build something and sell something that you have built in the modern world, it's, it's mind boggling how difficult that is now because of all of the, the government interference. And so what I would say is that, that Bitcoin to me seems like the obvious, and, and actually I'd even say it's, I would call it a lifeboat that God threw out to us because it's sort of the obvious um, way to deal with some of the, the top-down nonsense that is enforced on us by governments, but because it's able to be enforced on us because governments control our money. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So, so in building, a, in building a worldview from the ground up, what I would say is the logical place you end up is that as individuals, we have to have free agency in order for society to thrive. And that is like a great big neon sign pointing at Bitcoin. Absolutely. Um, I couldn't be more with you. I, I saw a great analogy um, or example, and it was, I can't remember where I've read it, and it was about the pricing of a copper pipe. You know, imagine you're creating a copper pipe. It's like yeah. what you were saying about building something. And when you've got market forces creating that copper pipe, you've got, you know, obviously the discovery of the mine, the mining itself, the, you know, the bringing up of the copper, the transport to the refinery, the refining, the transport to wherever else, whoever's going to use it. And every single one of those pieces is going into the market price. And everyone's just working that out at that ground up individual level. This is the cost of my labor, how much it's cost in terms of capital equipment to pull this thing out of the ground, to transport it, all the pieces of putting that truck together to <clears throat> the rubber for the tires and the, you know, whatever in the engine and that. Oh yeah. So the cost therefore of the truck, the total cost of the truck, et cetera. And, and so there's all these millions of pieces that go into the pricing of a copper pipe. And if you try to impose that top down, how, how could you possibly 
have all that knowledge and all that information of all those people on the ground that all just happen like, you know, like an ant nest, just coordinating and working it out amongst themselves, which is what life was before central banks. And people just dealing with one another with relatively little interference, working out the marketplace price of goods and services. And, that, and the more you get, as you say, that top-down interference, yeah, the, the less you know, efficient it becomes. Well, you know, I actually think I saw a proof the other day. Somebody posted on Twitter a, um, a proof that those things cannot be hand, handled at all by a central source. It is actually um, mathematically impossible for a central authority to handle all of the calculations required to run an economy. It's just not possible. Even with big data. And I know that I've read in some history books before where, and I can't remember the specific example, but there was a really cool example of where China at one stage, I mean, this is a few centuries ago, and mm -hmm. the West went down one track and you know, of course, there's a lot of argy-bargy in the West and there's always disagreement and, and that happens inside corporations and it happens inside families and it happens inside nations. But there's this constant, the same way there's the negotiation over price, there's this constant disagreement and discussion and, and negotiation over policy and direction and so on and so forth. But I know that when you've got that kind of one person making a decision or the one party making the decision without, as you say, all that ground level information. And I know that it meant that they missed the boat on a piece of progress and went, we're not going that direction, we're going this direction. And it caused them untold economic damage for the next 200 years and gave the West the head start. And I'm really kicking myself that I can't remember the detail of that example. But I remember it just really stood out for me at the time of the, the shortcomings of that centralized authoritarian decision making. You know, when you when you start to go down that road, the examples are endless. It's it's almost like there's a spectrum across the world and across history where on the one end, they they got the um, the individual people doing individual things, and the government kind of got out of the way. And on the other end, you had this centralized thing. You can almost divide every every period of every culture into this and, and examine it. And wherever they sit on that spectrum is sort of how effective they were about taking care of people and moving forward and making life better for people. Yeah. Right. So, so what, so how did you come across Bitcoin? What was the, what was the history there? When did you first come across that? Okay. So <clears throat> I actually, I have one of those stories, right? My, my cousin <laughs> called me back in like 2014, 2015. And he said, he told me about it. He explained how it all works to me. And he told me, you need to get in on this. And I said, okay, what's the internal inflation rate of Bitcoin for the next 10 years? Now, it turns out back then, the internal inflation rate of Bitcoin was something like 20%. Because uh, it was early days. It was still right, it was early days. The, yeah. the halvings hadn't gotten this far. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm like, okay, so what I'm going to do 
is I'm going to come back to this in five or six years and I'm going to take another look at it. And then I forgot, totally forgot about it and sort of got busy with life. And then what was it? End of last year, I started really um, looking around and I'd been meaning to learn about it more for some time. You know, I'd been meaning to, to dive in and do some exploration. And I heard an interview that Jordan Peterson did for his book club thing with John Vallis and some of the other guys. And yeah. um, I'm like, he's doing a podcast. I'll listen to that for a while. So I listened to John Vallis podcast for a little while. And then I ran into what is money with Breedlove and yeah. right. And, and then, you know, at that point, that really that one really spoke to me because um, Robert tends to get really deep into the weeds on what exactly money is and how it works and that gets me going that makes my mental uh, gears <laughs> no, absolutely right. start turning <laughs> so so I start listening to that and and I you know I should have. I should have gotten into this much sooner. It's like, it's almost like Bitcoin was built for me the way my personality has been. A lot of people talk about Bitcoin and, and especially on John's podcast, how finding Bitcoin really changed them. Yes. And for me, what I would say is I discover Bitcoin and I go, hey, I've been looking for this my whole life. This is exactly what I've needed. And I would say the one thing that it did change for me was it gave me some hope that things weren't just going down a dark tunnel into the depths of the earth with no return, which is sort of the way society felt up until then. It's like, what are we going to do? There is no, there's no out here. And, and so looking at that, I'm like, God tossed us a life raft. This is awesome. You know, so, so I would say, yeah, for me, it didn't change me all that much, but it has definitely allowed me to, to look to the future with a little less trepidation than I did before. You know, I, I need to take care of my family. I have five kids with another one on the way. Oh, and, wow. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's amazing is the quiet right now. Yeah. <laughs> My wife, my wife, I think my wife threw them all outside. So perfect. Perfect. Yeah. But yeah, anyway, so yeah. I do think there's a lot of us who uh, saw that had seen the problems with the world, have been cognizant of, of problems in the world, both I think financially, obviously, but you could argue, uh, I'm reluctant to use the word morally, but I think just socially perhaps is is better. Uh, and I've also been without hope for many, many years until finding Bitcoin. And really, it has been the kind of great white hope for me. Uh, and, and I think that's true for many of us who have been perhaps gold bugs in the past. There's a lot of people who have made that transition from being gold bugs, but realizing gold isn't keeping up and it's being manipulated and all of those things. And then, you know, Bitcoin kind of takes over where gold sort of takes, you know, um, yeah, actually, I, I still own some precious metals as well. Yeah. So yeah, I think no. I think many many of us do are kind of finding yeah. that combination. So I'm interested in the fact that um, Peterson, Vallis, and Breedlove, as far as I know, all three of them are Christian. 
I, I'm not sure about Vallis, although I'm sure I've read something that he wrote literally just the other day um, where he refers to Jesus or he refers, doesn't necessarily mean that's his think, entire background. Well, yeah. I think, you know, for Peterson, to say whether he's a Christian or not is sort of difficult. He, he believes that God is real and he tries to live that way, but to say that he has accepted Christ as his personal savior I don't think he would say that necessarily. Yeah. Okay. Um, and John Vallis is definitely, um, I think I'm representing it properly when he says that he is working his way toward a good answer when it comes to that question and that he doesn't have anything that he accepts as being good enough yet for him. Um, I think he believes that there is a God, but exactly what God looks like or who God is, I don't think he... I don't think he would call himself a Christian, probably. Breedlove has said that he is a he considers himself a disciple of Christ. I've heard him say that. But beyond that, I don't know. Okay. Um that that just happened to be the ones that I heard. And yeah. The the reason I'm asking is because I have sensed that, rightly or wrongly, and maybe it's not true for those three, although I'm, I'm fairly sure Breedlove is. Um but it seems to me like it's an attractive, Bitcoin seems attractive to, or it seems to attract uh, quite a number of Christians. Am I right in saying that? Is that your sense? And I think, why would that be? Well, I think that that's actually... The, the answer that I would come up with to that question is one that may be uncomfortable to some people, but, but let me take a stab at it. What I have heard over and over again is people who said that they found Bitcoin and it led them back to Christ. It led them to return to a faith in Christ that they had neglected or abandoned or not really taken seriously when they were young. Um, I know that there are a number of Christians who have taken up Bitcoin, but, you know, I actually sort of think that there's going to be more resistance to Bitcoin among Christians than among most people. And it's because a lot of Christians have a really conservative temperament. And by that, I don't mean that they have conservative political views, though that's often true, too. What I mean is that they tend to hold on to things that they have found to be effective or the things that used to work. It's like my dad. I have, my dad is a very, very smart guy. Um, I have, I, I understand fairly well what Bitcoin is now and how it works. And I have explained it to him in great detail and out of purely out of a sense of being conservative, out of not wanting to do something new something that is only 13 years old or whatever, and not knowing whether it's trustworthy for that reason, he has not bought Bitcoin. And that's totally his choice, but I sort of think that we're going to see a lot of that across Christians, where purely out of a sense of conservatism, not out of any, not out of any um, specific objection, but just out of that, that they will avoid it until it becomes necessary for them. Now, the other thing I would say is that what got me into Bitcoin wasn't 
specifically the ideas of it, what, what decided me on buying it was actually listening to the character of the people who John and other people were interviewing, people who had taken up Bitcoin as a, as a cause. And I go, this is like the American Revolution. We have a group of people here with a dragon to slay. They have these philosophical underpinnings that they all sort of believe in. Even if they disagree on this or disagree on that, there are some of them are over here, some are over there. But this is sort of like an American Revolution situation where there's a whole bunch of really smart, philosophically minded, driven people who have this incredible dragon to slay. It's mm. eating the world and they have a dragon to slay. And I went, yeah, that. Certainly that's what's gotten me in as well. Yeah, it, and it's the sheer, and this is where I need to be careful because I can be very prone to following and I need to be careful who I follow. Uh, mm. But there's some very charismatic people in this space with a real passion for what they're talking about. But one of those people, of course, recently was Alex Mashinsky. And I was a believer for some time. And here we are. So, I, you know, I and this has been, I've got to be careful of this because certainly there's been people over the years who I've really fallen in love with their ideas, their philosophies, and followed them. And of course, everyone's human at the end of the day. And certainly when I was younger, I would feel quite let down when I felt like that person or those, um, those ideas didn't quite fulfill you know, where... Yeah, of course, and, of course. And this is, I mean, this is different because, because Bitcoin itself is not a person and it's not about the, you know, it's a protocol right. and the toothpaste is out of the tube and it's out there and <laughs> it's operating regardless of any of the personalities. So on the one hand, the personalities are incredibly compelling and on the other even if I put that aside and go, I've got to be careful around this because I know I've been a bit of a sucker in the past, still, then you probe the Bitcoin protocol itself and you go, and yet this functions regardless. Well, and, and you know, how do I put this? I can't say I fall into that same trap. I, I think if anything, I tend to be uh, contrary for the sake of being contrary a little too much. I'm like, I, I'm off doing my own thing, leading my own group. Yep. You know, that, that's sort of been my life. But at the same time, you're right. The two things together, the protocol being out there and having it just working, regardless of what anybody does, and all of the game theory that is involved in having people um, use it, whether they, whether they, uh, would have wanted to when they first started to or not because the, the you know there's just too much incentive um and that and the that combination you know the combination of that and the sort of people who have made it their mission to spread it yeah i think i think makes it a much more trustworthy thing it's like the u.s constitution when it was first written with all of the checks and balances that were in it, it was really brilliant. 
-hmm. Now it, it had no internal enforcement mechanisms. So, you know, it has become ignored by most of the people who are in government. They just don't, don't even pay attention to it anymore. Mm -hmm. But back when it was first formed and people actually followed it and thought it was important to do so, it was almost the same sort of thing. It was a protocol that was really incredibly good. And the people who were using it were very committed to it. And it's taken a few generations for that to go away. Interesting analogy. So what's your, what's your hope for it? For Bitcoin, where, where do you, well, maybe these are two different questions. What's your hope, but, and is it realistic? You know, what do you realistically think will happen? Okay, so if I could write the story with a happy ending, we would have a bumpy but relatively painless and bloodless transition into using a Bitcoin standard as the global monetary standard with uh, you know, some sort of layer two or off-chain solution as a day-to-day -day spending that everybody used so that Bitcoin doesn't turn into a, another analog of gold and it just gets locked up in vaults by big institutions. Mm. Um, That'd be the happy ending I'd write. What do I think is realistic? I think that we've got two scenarios in front of us. One scenario involves sort of the, the CBDC problem yeah. where the central banks wind up taking over the currency space even more than they have by force and that Bitcoin is sort of pushed to the sidelines by a, a massive social campaign against it over the next number of years. And that if that happens, what we're going to see is, um, I don't know if you have heard of Martyr Maid. Um, Martyr Maid is the, it's actually his Twitter handle is Martyr Maid. It's at Martyr Maid. And he does a podcast, and one of the one of the episodes that I unfortunately listened to recently was a, a detailed description of what happened when the Soviet Union was retreating across Eastern Europe after the Second World War, mm -hmm. and what the Soviet Union did to its citizens. And I've also read some of Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago, but I'm sort of down in that one. Mm -hmm. um, but I suspect that we could see a situation where that is the mainstream, where one, the, the biggest chunk of society just goes full force down that road and it becomes sort of a, a corporation. I actually think it's more likely that corporations uh, are the ones who get together and start this sort of central bank digital currency thing. They that they might be the ones who spearheaded it. But regardless of the agent, the idea being that the mainstream of society goes down that rail and that there are a few of us who continue to use Bitcoin, who don't want anything to do with that disaster and just do our best to live despite it. Um, I think that's one possible scenario. The other possible scenario that I see is, and, and this one, a lot of Bitcoin people really aren't gonna like this one. Um, is that Bitcoin 
does reach general adoption and that for about two or three decades, maybe at most, um, we have this huge prosperity boom across the globe. And where that has to inevitably end if Bitcoin is generally adopted is that the, um, you know how we have seen our societies, and I'm talking about Australia, the US, a lot of the Western societies with this COVID thing have engaged in this general hysteria about COVID that has led them to these insane things like vaccinating and masking preschoolers, mm -hmm. which is just totally insane. It's, it's crazy. Um, if, if, if Bitcoin is generally adopted, I can see when the power structures sort of begin to form back into something that's more regular because you know, the king is dead, long live the king. Whoever the new king is, if the new king is Bitcoin, then the people who are influential in that space and who become influential over Bitcoin over the next 20 years, then have the power to sort of suggest to society that they move down a path where Bitcoin becomes more like a central bank digital currency. You change the rules a tiny bit here or there, and you know, you by by means of mass media and mass hysteria, you get people to adopt it, and it turns into the panopticon that we're all afraid of. Ooh, interesting idea. Um, yeah, okay. So you'd need a, either a lot of influence over the media, or you need like fifty percent or a conglomerate of you to have fifty percent own 50% of Bitcoin. No, not own 50% of Bitcoin. What you would need is you would need about 60 to 70% of the people who are in charge of running nodes or mining, either one, you have to have both, to accept a rule change in order for it to work. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter who owns it so much as who runs those things. And yeah. in, in a world 30 years down the road where Bitcoin is the international currency, um, who, the way you have to think of it is this, humans are the problem. People are sinful, damaged beings, and we tend to screw stuff up. And especially when you get power settling on people's shoulders, they tend to, after a generation or two particularly, they tend to get corrupted. And so if you have a new sort of power structure solidify around Bitcoin, then from there, you could get something like this, this craziness that we saw in the mainstream media with COVID, where some kind of economic problem happens and the solution has to be, we have to change the rules this way. And so 70% of people accept it and they go down that road. It's, it's totally possible. Okay, absolutely. And Jordan Peterson said at the Bitcoin conference, one of the things he said is he, he clearly has quite an affinity for the Bitcoin community and has a warm regard for many people in the Bitcoin community. But he says he was very careful around warning 
be careful what you pray for basically was the the concept he didn't use those words but it was with well with great power comes great responsibility but but it was beyond that it was don't assume that it's all going to be pretty and work with this utopian ideal that many people have for bitcoin nothing ever works out that way there's well and, this, um, and if i might yeah um the one thing to go along with what you've said and to sort of piggyback on that um one of the things that i see that i really don't like in the bitcoin community now is this this idea that everything except bitcoin is a scam it's the whole toxic maximalism thing yeah. taken to an extreme. And here's why. We need, as individuals, the ability to innovate. We need to be able to change things. As Jordan Peterson would say, when things start to get um, too rigid and too tyrannical, we need the ability to be that hero who goes down into the underworld and uh, you know, saves his dead father or whatever the whatever that meme is, we need the ability to be able to change things and to innovate. And so this idea that Bitcoin is the only possible answer and everything else must be rejected or you will be hated for considering it is really, really a bad idea in the long run. Right now, it saves some pain on things that are obviously scams. It's like, we know now that since 2021, Celsius was actually a Ponzi scheme. They were actually taking in new users and giving those users money to other users. It was nothing more than a Ponzi. Well, that's, that's really painful, especially when it comes to different cryptocurrencies, which right now, Bitcoin is the only one that is at Bitcoin's level. It's the only one that is as decentralized, that is as robust, that is you know, that has all of the, the characteristics of hard money. Right now, Bitcoin is the hardest money. And that's great. That's awesome. That's what we need to be focused on right now. But 30 years down the road, you know, if, if society starts to go off track and Bitcoin turns into a panopticon trap, we need to, we need to be fostering a culture that is friendly to innovation, even if that innovation is not convenient at the moment. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and certainly I think of the vast majority of crypto projects as simply being fintech start or not fintech necessarily, but just tech startups. You know, they're just, there's nothing wrong with that. We, right. we see them in the small cap equity space all the time yeah um, absolutely why is it problematic in the blockchain space uh, it's, yeah. it shouldn't be and it's like you say call it venture capital call all of the stuff that is crypto other than bitcoin venture capital yep. it's unregulated venture capital which means it's got tons of, of bad actors in there doing stuff like the whole Terra Luna thing, which was, you know, when you when you do a little bit of forensics on it, it turns out it was a scam. It was intended to be a rug pull. That sucks. It's sad, but it's also totally to be expected. And that alone is going to be enough to teach people that Bitcoin is king over time. But we also have to be friendly enough to people who are genuinely trying to innovate, genuinely trying to do things a better way that we're, we keep our 
our mind open to other possibilities. I there's a guy on Twitter who's been he and I tease each other back and forth. He's been telling me, "Oh, you need to use Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin Cash." And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah." You know, Bitcoin Cash right now isn't Bitcoin. It's it's not the hardest thing there is. It it has had a rule change, which means it is not the hardest money. So, you know, but there could come a day when something like that turns into being what we really need to keep from going down some terrible, dark, tyrannical hole. Yeah. Okay. So how, you've got five kids with one on the way. You see all the problems that are currently there in society. Bitcoin offers some level of hope, but it comes with its own potential dangers then. So how do you look after what why do you have so many kids <laughs> into this dark? How do you how do you have faith to bring children into this world? And how do you look after them to make sure they're gonna be okay and your grandkids are gonna be okay? You know, ever since ever since I was a kid, and we'll, we'll, let me go back just a little bit here, and I'll share a bit of my testimony with you. When I was a teenager, because of my growing up situation, because of everything that was going on, I was on track to become a serial rapist and murderer. Mentally and emotionally, I was headed down a path that is just totally... Um, if you read articles about people who have done those things, like when I was a kid, I was reading Reader's Digest and I went, these people are like me. Okay. And it's, it was, it was not something that I had any, any intentional control over once I realized what was going on. It had me. And I prayed and God took it away. One day it was there and the next day it was gone. And I had believed in him ever since I was very young, but that was, I would say, the thing that sort of set me on the path I'm on now. And if, if the God that I serve can take me and turn my head what's going on inside my head from that into something where I, I just love the people around me and I still have all of the problems that a normal person has. I'm not perfect, but you take something like that away, then I know that he has a plan, that he is operating in the world and that he is taking care of his people. And so I serve Jesus Christ. And I have faith that he will take care of my kids and my grandkids. And at the same time, you know, I do my best to bring them up to have good judgment and good work ethic and to be people who add value to those around them. You know, my daughter does a lemonade stand every year and my son's growing a garden and, you know, all of these things that, that I can do to bring them up right. But in the end, what it comes down to is, what is my Lord asking of me? And having those kids, that's something that he wanted from me. And, you know, I have, 
I have nothing more to say to it than that, basically. That feels like a really strong note to finish on. I'm going to suggest we wind it up there. Jared, it's been an Absolutely. absolute pleasure having you on Bitcoin People, and I look forward to staying in contact. So I'm going to Thank you, Carrie. the recording now.